Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Matt Nelson, who has been at the forefront of genetics and drug discovery for a long time. And if you haven't heard his name, he has led some of the most influential research into the impact of genetic evidence on the success of drug development programs. This is an episode I've been looking forward to doing for quite some time. Matt was at GSK for about 15 years, initially as a principal scientist and then head of human genetics. And today he's vice president of genetics and genomics at Deerfield Discovery and Development, and also the CEO of GenScience, which we're going to learn a little bit more today, hopefully. I also saw that you were an adjunct professor at UNC for a little while. I think actually, well, we overlapped. I was a student there. I never took any of your classes, um, but you were a biostats uh, professor. Is that right? Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Pleasure to be here. Yes. So I had, a, I had an adjunct position at UNC in the Department of Biostatistics. I didn't actually teach any courses. I had a couple of students that worked with me on some internships and was involved in some of the other faculty-related activities, but never had a chance to teach. Amazing. Yeah. So I, I couldn't have taken your class even if I wanted to. So I wanted to start maybe with a little bit about your background. You've done, you've spent some time in academia. You spent time in large pharma. Deerfield is kind of, an, and GenScience is an interesting combo of a significant scale, you know, investment arm and investment fund, but also quite, you know, a small and emerging biotech. So I'm interested to hear what that career arc has been like. And, and maybe as you take us through it, what your focus has been in each of those chapters, uh, if you'd like to call it that. Sure. You know, coming out of my PhD and from the University of Michigan in 1999, you know, I had that ultimate decision to make. Do I stay academic? Do I pursue that path or do I go into industry? And I was exploring positions on both sides of that and ultimately opted to go into industry, partly just from just luck of the draw. I had met at one of the conferences I was speaking at some executives from Pfizer this would have been back in you know 1997 or so. And as luck would have it, this was the team that had developed the patented for Pfizer. And they had left Pfizer around 1998 and started a new company, Asperian Therapeutics. And you know, they were very interested in the work that I was doing and was interested in particular my approach to data and analytics. And I had the opportunity the last year of my PhD to do some moonlighting for them. So I received permission from the department to take Fridays and spend those at Asperian Therapeutics. And that was a great opportunity to get my foot in the door, kind of see what the startup culture was like, to see what the pharmaceutical industry was like, you know, to learn from you know, very successful scientists in that area. And ultimately, when I had to make the decision to go to stay academic or to go into industry, I actually chose to take a full-time position with Asperian Therapeutics. And that kind of set the course for the rest of my the rest of my career. Interestingly enough, at Asperion, I didn't do any genetics. They were a kind of a pure play in as a biopharmaceutical company. Their early products were inspired by genetics, APOE, APOE1. And but most of my work there was just data analytics, working on the cheminformatics side of thing, working on preclinical models, kind of anything that that involved IT or analysis, I got involved in and really enjoyed that startup culture. Had the opportunity to get back into genetics then in, in 2002, I joined Sequinome, which was at that time at the forefront of kind of this large scale genotyping. They were using mass spec methods for doing that. And you know, they were quickly replaced by the, the array based methods that, that came along shortly thereafter. But it was a, for those three years that I was at Sequinome, it was an interesting opportunity to start to play with genotype data at scale and then join GSK in 2005 and kind of so my career grow through now working in the large pharma space 
I led the statistical genetics group for several years, and in the last five years, led the field of or led the genetics team overall. Uh, and it was an interesting arc to kind of be part of that while, you know, in the post-human genome project, while we're seeing these technologies come online and we're exploring, you know, what value will genetics provide in the pharmaceutical space? And in the 2000s, you know, before we really knew that much about the genetics of common diseases, we initially were focusing on applications in pharmacogenetics, which was really important and it has had some really important impacts, as you know. And uh, and then as the 2010s started to come along with large uh, array-based meta-analyses of, for these genome-wide association studies, and then later as next-generation sequencing really started to, to ramp up, the, the focus shifted to, okay, now we're starting to learn a lot more about genes that are causally involved in the diseases that we want to treat. How useful is this information in, in that drug discovery and drug development process? And what did you learn maybe in the 15 years while you were at GSK? I'm interested in, especially on the genetic side, what the questions you were asking and answering were at the beginning and how they evolved towards the end, because you had a front row seat to some really, I think, interesting science during that time. Yeah. You know, in the first days at GSK in 2005, 2006, they were kind of the tail end of those battle days of Canada gene studies, where, you know, a lot of time and energy was spent. And really, we didn't learn that many new things that, that have stood up to the test of time, except for, you know, just understanding, you know, more around the conditions of conducting genetic analysis, understanding linkages equilibrium, how that confounds interpretation, and starting to understand how do you design the design and interpret the genetic studies of common complex disease. But really, the next iteration was pharmacogenetics. And in early 2000s, 2004, 2005, there were some publications that demonstrated some really large effect sizes on serious adverse events. And GSK had its own experience with that, with a back of your hypersensitivity and HIV medication that was really facing challenges in terms of how it could be applied because three to 5% of patients that took the drug were experiencing these, these severe adverse events that if re-exposed to the drug could be life-threatening. And it was discovered that an HLA variant, HLA-B5701, uh, entirely explained the the occurrence of these adverse events and it had a huge impact on the on the life of that drug in 2007 in fact we were part of a pharmaceutical consortium called the international serious adverse event consortium and we the purpose of that was to bring funding from multiple pharma together together with academic consortia and fund more of this exploration of the genetics underlying serious adverse events and you know, it was tremendously successful. We were able to bring together large enough cohorts that we were involved in dozens of, of genetic risk factor discoveries through that. When, and during that time, you led what would go on to be, and I think pretty quickly was recognized as a pretty seminal paper. So in 2015, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it was the first paper to quantify the impact of human genetics, especially in quite a systematic way on probability of success in, in drug development. And You've also actually recently followed up, validated, and extended that work um, uh, just a couple of months ago now with a preprint. I was wondering if, for those who aren't familiar with this paper, maybe you could talk through what that core idea was in 2015. What did you find? And then maybe we can transition to how that's played out over the last eight years. And I think, in certainly from my perspective, it's kind of kicked. It was, in addition to the thousand plus citations that the paper has, it's probably in many thousand more pitch decks for 
biotech companies, startups, and it really has, I think, kicked off a major investment in large pharma as well into these programs. So maybe you could start with what you were focused on in 2015, and then we'll talk about what's changed since then. Thanks. You know, that work has really had a tremendous impact. Again, referencing back to the Human Genome Project, part of the motivation for the Human Genome Project, as it was stated, was to help identify you know, the genes that cause disease and develop better drugs. So there's always been this aspiration that genetics was going to point us to better target discovery, target validation, and ultimately drug discovery and development. But all we had were you know, a set of anecdotes and an aspiration. There was a really great paper that, that Robert Plenge and David Altshuler published you know, sometime around 2013 or so that, that laid out some of those ideas and principles and gave a few nice anecdotal examples. But there really wasn't any systematic evidence to tell us that, that genetics was any better than any other source of data for prioritizing drug discovery portfolios. And ultimately, it was a talk that I heard from the head of R&D at GSK where you know, he was repeating some of these refrains about the importance of genetics. And we kind of got together after that and discussed that the evidence base really wasn't there to support that. And so that started a skunkworks project, uh, essentially you know, spending my nights and weekends trying to figure out how can we actually go about testing that hypothesis. And you know, being statistically trained, you know, sometimes I'm just as motivated to be able to disprove you yes. know, a common conception as to prove it. And so I was actually very open to coming to the conclusion that there really was no evidence that, that genetics differentiated drug discovery and development success. But much to my surprise and pleasantly surprised, the evidence was really compelling. We showed in that 2015 paper that drugs that are supported by genetic evidence, that is where the target and indication for that drug is supported by a genetic association or Mendelian evidence between the same gene and a similar disease that pro drug programs with that kind of evidence were twice as likely to be successful as those that lacked it and progressed from phase one to a launch therapeutic. And what drives that success? How much of it is giving you a better sense of safety concerns that you can you know, build around or get out of the way in the first place, how much of it is efficacy? Maybe you can break that down. And, and also, I'm interested in the types of genetic evidence that were more or less helpful, because you're obviously looking at both common complex diseases where you may have GWAS studies, but also rare and ultra rare diseases where those Mendelian you know, linkages are the primary driver. So this work primarily focuses on drug efficacy, because we're evaluating that ultimate, that drug mechanism, the target and the indication. So the intended therapeutic effect that you want to have with that drug. So that two times probability of success, for the most part, is only considering the value of genetics on drug safety. So it, I don't think that it's, although genetics can be important for drug safety as well, um, that, that signal is primarily coming through the, what I believe would be the efficacy signal. Coincidentally, we, we actually have another preprint that we're getting ready to drop in the next few weeks where we did some analysis on the safety, the value of genetics for predicting adverse events. And coincidentally, we find that for approved drugs, that genetic evidence essentially, for among approved drugs, genes that have associations with uh, side effects are about twice as likely 
amongst those drugs with side effects versus those without. So oh. a similar kind of effect. And then in the 2023 paper, you revisit this hypothesis, but you know, you've got the benefit of eight years of additional data and, and learning. So what did you find that was the same in the update? And I know it's not peer reviewed yet. It's a preprint, but hopefully we can talk about it still. I mentioned what you learned and what was refined, what changed? What's changed the most is just the, the total amount of genetic data. We have a figure in the paper where we show, you know, how much how many gene disease connections were known back, you know, around the time of our original paper, which the data was essentially a 2014 paper versus what's available essentially in 2022, the data that went into this, this most recent paper. And yeah, it's been, we've seen exponential growth in the amount of genetic evidence that has been accumulated since that period of time. So, so that's the biggest difference between the two. In terms of results, we were pleasantly surprised to see that not only did we replicate our original results, but we found that the effect size was actually larger than the two times probability of success that we observed in the, the original paper. The overall estimate is now 2.6, and we find that there's significant heterogeneity amongst different therapy areas. So therapy areas like metabolic disease, hematologic disease, the relative success, the probability of success given genetic evidence versus without genetic evidence is over four. And nearly all therapy areas, we see evidence that genetics differentiates probability of success. So, you know, that was important. Other things that we wanted to go back and investigate in this new paper with the additional data that were available were, you know, does genetic effect size matter? Does the, the year of discovery matter? Even you know, since 2012 or so, there have been lots of hand wringing around. Are we kind of in a post GWAS era? You know, right. have we found all of the genetic effects that matter, and everything else is just kind of in the scree at the far end of the plot? And we showed that's not the case. That the genetic discoveries in the last two to three years are just as differentiating on probability of success as the genetic discoveries in the first few years of GWAS. Um, we find that that overall effect size doesn't appear to matter in differentiating probability of success. Um, now, we didn't get at, to the point of how do you better select targets ab initio, you know, and it's maybe, it may be the case that genetic associations of large effect have a higher prior probability of becoming targets of good drugs than those of small effects. But I don't think that the evidence is really out there right now to conclude that. And how do drug development, drug discovery, and or genetics teams, or all three of them working in concert in pharma companies use this information? What are the, and I think, you know, probably things started to change in 2015 if they weren't changing before that, but what, when you take this insight, how do you actually apply that then to drug development and what do you change in particular? Yeah, I think this work has had a pretty significant impact on the uh, pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical industry as a whole. I think most companies are now thinking about genetic evidence, at least at one level or another. Some companies are very proactive and seeking genetic evidence to help drive the target discovery and early target prioritization. Other companies, I think, are perhaps coming in, you know, and layering on the genetic evidence after the fact and kind of thinking about, you know, what are the differentiating factors of one potential therapeutic approach versus another therapeutic approach? You know, there, there are some companies you can, Regeneron, obviously, AstraZeneca, GSK, Mylan, you know, you can kind of, there's a very long list of companies that are probably very much a genetics first 
approach in their early target ID, target validation, and then a lot of companies that 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 use it inconsistently, and probably a small number that that ignore it altogether. But I think they do that at their own peril. When you mentioned a couple of these examples that have all applied this approach in different ways, one that had applied it quite uniquely was GSK and the partnership with 23andMe. And I'm interested if you could talk about how different large pharma have approached this. And I'm interested really in the value of 23andMe-like data that is extremely large in scale, but may not have the phenotyping, especially clinical phenotyping versus you know, UK Biobank or FinGen or some of these other, they're, they're still enormous cohorts, but they're not on the scale of eight to 10 million people of 23andMe. I'm curious if you could compare and contrast the value of scale, pure scale and patient reported data and genotype arrays versus deep clinical phenotypes and exomes and some of these other kinds of data types that other programs have. You know, I think we learned early on that scale matters in the genetics of complex disease. and you know, with very few exceptions, there is no alternative to scale. You have to achieve scale to be able to identify the kinds of genetic effects that we're looking for, either because the effects are so small or the variants are so rare that you have to have very large right. sample size to identify them. You know, and that's what Jenny 23andMe had going for it at the time that we entered into our uh, collaboration with them in 2018. And it's, you know, frankly, what they still have going for it. You know, they had multiple million at that time. And, you know, I hear numbers like 8 million today in terms of subjects that have opted in to participate in research and have provided phenotypic data for the analysis. Yes, the, their data is primarily self-report, but there was, you know, when we were putting this collaboration together, Robert Gentleman, who was the head of bioinformatics there, presented really nice data when they compared the, essentially the effect sizes estimated from the 23andMe cohort versus UK Biobank you know, there's, they're about 80% as good. And wow. so, you know, in terms of the, the additional noise in those phenotypes, and if you're 80% as good, but five times as large, 10 times as large, that goes a long way. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So if you were setting up a program today, how would you think about partnerships with biobanks generating in-house data sets? Because the world has changed a lot since the, since that 20, I don't remember when that deal was done, but 2018, probably, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, it's 2018. Yeah, the, the world has changed and continues to change. I feel like we're on a bit of a, an incremental trajectory right now. Of course, we had UK Biobank that came out and, and has you know, rocked the world of genetics in, in amazing ways. FinGen is having an impact, you know, another 500,000. We have all of us here in the United States and the Million Veterans Program that are kind of having their their incremental impact. And there, there are a lot of more programs that are out there. So I feel like, you know, each of these data sets that become available feels like it opens up, you know, a window into another 10%, you know, wow. of those genetic effects that are impacting the diseases that we care about. You know, I think that the, the next generation sequence data, either exome or whole genome sequencing, where we can identify more and more of these loss of functions and evaluate you know, what happens when you only have 50% of, of a protein working on biology. I, I think that those have tremendous opportunity to yield greater insight, but, but their scale really matters. And I feel like you know, we're not really going to unlock that space in the next 
five years. Again, I think we'll, you know, each new data set will give us a little bit more insight, but that'll be for the smaller number of large genes that, you know, that where you have the most statistical power. And, you know, I, I really feel strongly that it's not until we get into cohorts in the hundreds of millions that we're really going to understand that genetic space. And, you know, we're not going to get into hundred, hundreds of millions until we have routine clinical sequencing and are able to kind of routinely integrate those types of clinical sequence data with electronic health record data in a properly consented and in, in a way that, that allows that to be shared with, with researchers. Yeah, you, you beat me to the question I was going to ask, which was what is the, if these are 10% incremental improvements, what does that, that next leap forward or that moonshot looks like? So is that what you're thinking about the next big leap forward we need to make is how do we get newborn screening or population screening in a way that is responsibly joined up so that people consent proactively for their data to be used in this kind of research? Is that how you'd think about it? I think that's as when we think about what is the potential utility of genetic data from a clinical perspective, I think that makes perfect sense that we move there. And when you consider, you know, what do we really need to move the field of genetics to the next level? You know, I think that's when it's really going to to take off. Yeah, fascinating. I, I agree with you on that. I, I had some like kind of specific questions about pharma drug development that I would I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts on because you've thought about this from the genetics angle and in a lot more than I think anyone I've ever spoken to. But the, the it, this, I guess, pushback comes up often, which is why and here I'm talking about going after like a genetic subtype of common disease. Let's say you go you try to treat ApoE4 Alzheimer's or LARC2 Parkinson's or, you know, some genetically defined but subset of a common group of people. And the pushback is often, you know, the company is going to generally go after the biggest label they can. So why would they constrain themselves to a genetic subtype? I'm interested whether that's a fair criticism, whether it's uh, not for some reason, or you know, under what circumstances might you say, actually, yeah, that is what people will do. But where do they actually have to go after that genetic subtype and why? I think that's a fair criticism. And from what I see and what I hear, I think that you know, most companies are still struggling with that. You know, in those cases where you have compelling scientific evidence that you think a mechanism will work better in a particular subtype. You know, you have the the question about, you know, do we restrict our label, but essentially reduce our clinical trial costs and improve our probability of success? Or do we go for do we go for the broadest label possible, but do that at risk of, you know, demonstrating a smaller effect size and possibly you know, failing to differentiate that drug from other options that are out there. So, I, you know, I don't think that, I think that for now, every company is going to have to do that analysis on a case-by-case -case basis and come to their own conclusion about what makes sense for them. You know, in particular, you know, I think polygenic risk scores are kind of one of those areas that, that yeah. you know, many have thought about in terms of that application. And as you pointed out, you know, there, there are other cases where you know, particular genetic risk factors could be important in differentiating drug response. What role do you see polygenic risk scores playing in drug development based on all the work you've done? I think their greatest application is probably going to be early proof of concept studies, you know, enriching your population for patients that are most likely to experience events during the course of a clinical study and being able to 
reduce either the size of the study or the duration of the study. So my sense is that kind of phase 2B studies are, are perhaps some, the ideal place to, to integrate polygenic risk scores. Whether to carry the learnings from that forward into a phase three registrational study that's going to affect your drug label, you know, that's a again a bigger strategic question to be considered on a case by case basis. Yeah, interesting. So just to make sure I understand that, the idea would be that you can recruit for the phase two B and and get through that you know that exploratory, more exploratory study by enriching for people. For example, if you take the top decile of a cardiovascular. Yeah polygenic risk score. Interesting. And then, you know, you may not actually take that into the phase three. You may just use it as a way to get that evidence a little bit more quickly. Are people doing that? Are are there any that you know of studies that are recruiting that way? Or is it kind of a a concept right now that's being worked on? It's mostly a concept. There were some nice retrospective studies conducted on some of the PCSK9 cardiovascular outcome trials that demonstrated retrospectively the, you know, the value of this approach. I am not aware of any prospective studies that have been conducted and read out. I know Genomics PLC, our future health, you know, are are very interested in that strategy. And I I would expect to see some studies coming out of those groups in in the near future. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes a lot of sense. I was also wondering about the safety point you were talking about earlier. There's a, there's certainly a, a, a probably way to proactively design trials where you exclude people who you have a prediction that there might be safety events. But again, you've got this quandary of do you, you know, do you do that prospectively or do you analyze retrospectively and try to figure out if, you know, if the prediction is indeed true and then take some other strategy. I'm, I'm wondering if you see that as an approach as well and if that's happening yet or also something people are thinking about. Yeah, on the safety front, I think there, there are two different questions. One is, does a particular drug mechanism have an increased risk of generating side effects? Right. And that's essentially the question that the paper we're going to be releasing is addressing. And it's saying yes. So, you know, in particular, we see the largest effects, for example, for cardiovascular. And so if you're developing a drug, say, for an autoimmune condition, but you have a, an association that relates your drug target to cardiovascular disease of some sort or another. If it's not kind of expected to be beneficial, yeah. then what we're saying is that you know there's a higher risk that drug mechanism will elicit cardiovascular side effects. And so you have to watch for those. And so it doesn't necessarily tell you who to exclude from, from treatment. You know, in terms of exclusion from treatment, that really is getting at the pharmacogenetics for the most part. And, you know, I haven't seen too much evidence that you can predict pharmacogenetic response a priori unless you know, you know, ADME is so that the genes that affect the absorption, distribution, excretion, and metabolism of a drug, you know, if you know you're going through one of those metabolizing enzymes and it's polymorphic, then that you have an opportunity to potentially anticipate possible adverse events due to uh, differences in drug exposure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a, there was a recent topical, at least on, on the people I follow on Twitter of this one shot, you know, one, one shot data from Verve around you know, treating genetic forms of familial hypercholesterolemia. I'm, I'm wondering if you have a thought on that modality and how big of a deal or not so big of a deal it's going to be, because I think on one side, you've got some pretty tried and true treatments for common, some relatively common genetic diseases like familial hypercholesterolemia. But from a technology perspective, it is pretty fascinating that you may, for a variety of genetic diseases, be able to go in and make 
And I, I think there's been some RNAi data presented recently showing similar annual doses and extremely prolonged decrease of some of these, yes, yeah, some of these important biomarkers. Wondering if you have a thought on that. Is it something that is maybe actually not going to be all that relevant in common disease, but it is in rare disease world? Is it actually, you know, very interesting to you for some reason? I'm I'm really just curious to get your take on it. I think that's to be determined. You know, these obviously you've got the really compelling use cases like for sickle cell disease. Yeah. You know, there are no effective alternatives for treating sickle cell disease. So it makes perfect sense that if you can take a gene editing approach and get a functional cure for such a debilitating disease, 100%. And so diseases like that, and in particular, I think for a large number of rare Mendelian conditions that, that I think we'll see more and more applications of gene editing technologies to, to treat them. But on the more common complex diseases like VERV, think that the, the jury is still out. You know, there are other alternatives to gene editing that are effective when you know, they're prescribed and taken as prescribed. But I, I think that time will tell what the use cases for those are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. You made a, you made an, I think, important subtle point there, which is prescribed and taken as prescribed. And I, I don't know the data on this very well, but I think it's the, it is an important way to think about it, which is, okay, there may be a pill or an injection that you can take every six months for the rest of your life, but that does count mm -hmm. on you taking it every six months for the rest of your life, which may not, you know, may not be a fair assumption in all cases. I think that the areas that Verve is working in will be a great case study. You know, we'll be able to see what the uptake is. You know, I think it'll take, you know, it may take decades for us to know the answer to this question. Yeah. As we see what the durability of these treatments are and, you know, whether there are any significant safety risks that occur over time that aren't anticipated at the time that, that these treatments are made. I have a one more kind of blue skies question for you, but one that I think about a lot and increasingly so, but the role of drug development and prevention, you know, when you have a window in genetics like we do today, but we definitely will when we're at the scale of hundreds of millions of people, we're going to be able to detect disease risk far earlier. And, you know, the example that I'm spending some time on right now is ALS, motor neuron disease, or as it's known here in the UK. But we, you know, we may live in a world where you have an approved drug that works for people who have the disease, and then you have a great genetic target for people who have a high likelihood of going on to develop the disease. Do you have a sense of how, you know, either, either you or large pharma biotech companies that are developing genetic medicines are thinking about this opportunity? Because to me, it seems like the kind of thing that uh, could become more and more important in the next few years. First, we come up with a, you know, a treatment for the disease itself, but then if we have a good genetic target, why not go further upstream and, and treat healthy people before they get sick in the first place? Yeah, I think it's a great concept. And I think you know, all of us objectively could say that would be a good thing to have therapies that do that. I think the challenge is the practicalities of doing this in a biotechnology company and a pharmaceutical company, because those trials will generally have to be so large and so long that it become it may become cost prohibitive in some circumstances to be able to develop them. You know, if you're not able to enrich for enough events in a short enough period of time, then you know, huge risk associated with with trying to develop drugs like that. So there it may be that this for some of these first treatments to to potentially come on the market might require some government participation or other maybe philanthropic approaches to do that because it's, you know, I can see that there could be challenges in developing a viable commercial model 
to developing treatments like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. On the subject of investment and philanthropy, you made the decision to join Deerfield not too long ago. I'm curious what made you decide to change. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Deerfield and GenScience and what you're working on now. Sure. So Deerfield is a healthcare investment firm, so obviously a very different kind of environment than I was used to at GSK. What really attracted me to Deerfield and Deerfield to me was how we think about probability of success and how probability of success factors into decision-making you know, across the board from very early target identification to thinking about the value of an early product in a pipeline or in a pipeline of products. And so I was excited to come to Deerfield to apply this type of probabilistic approach where genetics is that differentiating factor to a wide variety of different types of investment decision-making. Deerfield, as I mentioned, we're, we're a healthcare investment firm and we're involved in investing in therapeutics, in services, and in devices and other medical technologies. And you know, genetics can be important in every one of those fields. And so and as the head of genetics at Deerfield, it's been a great front row seat to, to be able to see where, you know, wherever that subject matter expertise and genetic insights are able to, to differentiate that decision making. Yeah. So I guess when you're evaluating a biotech company, for example, for a potential investment, the lens that you would take on it is to look at how they are or aren't leveraging some of these insights that have been generated over the last 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, how they're leveraging it and whether the products in their platform have supporting genetic evidence and how that influences our view on probability of success. And you know, probability of success is a critical piece of the commercial model that one builds around uh, investments like this. Do you have a sense of how much that's changed in the last 10 years or so? Like with, with biotechs, has there been a, I, you know, I suspect there was probably quite a boom over the last five years in gene editing and gene therapy companies. We've had the market contract a little bit. So maybe that's had an impact. But I'm curious what you're seeing if you if, you know, and I know you haven't been in this role for this long, but 10 years ago, how many companies would you have seen that really had their genetics strategy tight and had you know thought about this a lot versus, you know, out, out of the 100 companies that you see today that this is really a core part of what they do? Yeah, you're right. I really can't speak to what investors were seeing 10 years ago in those companies. My guess is just where the technology was you know, where genetics or genomics was playing a role, it was more aspirational than really, you know, clearly differentiated. Today, it obviously plays a, a central role, you know, genetics and genomics in one way or another kind of factors into almost every company's thesis. And, you know, I, from my experience, I'd say, you know, half of therapeutics companies in the early stages are thinking about genetics as one layer of evidence to consider as part of their discovery strategy. You're spending obviously some time with Deerfield, but you're also CEO of GenScience, which is an affiliate company. I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe how that spin-out process goes or incubation process, if that is how it works, and then a little bit about the company and what got you excited about it. Yeah, you know, ultimately, I think GenScience is the outcome of a significant amount of GSK envy or genomics PLC envy, because I, I feel so strongly about the value of genetic evidence. You know, I wanted to be able to get access to better genetic evidence than what one can gather just by pulling together online resources and, and going from one website to another. And you know, the, the kind of tertiary analysis that aggregates all of the available genetic information, and, and most of that in the form of summary statistics, 
and all of the related genomic information that can help you understand how those genes are involved in disease just takes a lot of investment, you know, to have the ability to really leverage those data well. And so Gentience essentially is the end result of a four-year odyssey to try and find the best model to be able to create that type of a platform resource. So, you know, the purpose of Gentience is to essentially bring together that world of genetic and genomic information with the primary purpose of leveraging that for better drug discovery and development decision-making. Yeah, amazing. Because every year there's more and more data that's put into the public domain. There are new ways to analyze it. And every company is doing this in parallel, right? And spending an enormous amount of resources, finding the data, cleaning it, attaching the, making sense of it. And I mean, it makes a ton of sense. You could you could bundle that into a platform that just saves everybody some time and that gets them to the answer faster. Exactly. You know, we do not want to become a drug discovery company. We really want this to be an effective platform. And I feel like, you know, protecting this as a platform and being able to you know, leverage the, the revenue that we can gain through that by reinvesting in the platform and creating, you know, a world-class capability that right now only the a few of the top tier pharma have access to, you know, my, my goal is for everyone from, you know, the other pharma that, that may not have invested in the core genetics capability down to one person with an idea for a drug discovery company that wants to integrate genetics into that process. You know, they all can access that. Yeah. Amazing. How, the, all that being said, how do you avoid the siren song of becoming a, a drug discovery and development company? Cause it is, uh, and I, Maybe I should try to get Anne from 23andMe on here, but it seems like one of those things that at any scale of genetic understanding, people eventually come to the realization that, hey, maybe I should take some of these targets forward myself. How, how have you thought about how to you know, stay focused on that platform strategy versus deviate and follow that siren song? You know, I think it's just commitment to the platform. And, you know, one of the nice things of kind of being a Deerfield affiliate and kind of coming out of that Deerfield and investor ecosystem is there are a lot of other models that can work very well, you know, in terms of new company creation, joint ventures that right. can leverage that platform and, you know, possibly, you know, give us some reach through into the value of it. You know, so, so those options are there should we need to take them. But I am very strongly committed to maintaining this as a focused platform. For these purposes. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So maybe to close out here, you dangled this opportunity for us as a field of getting to hundreds of millions of people with linked genetics, medical records. What do you think we need to do to get there? Are there one or two things that you think we could be doing now to pull that future forward? What would they be? That's a really tough one. You know, at least in the United States, the biggest challenge is who's going to pay for this? You know, where patients move between insurance systems with great regularity. No insurer really wants to pony up for this type of a test that, you know, for a patient that, that may not be there with them very long, where the value of that test plays out over a lifetime and not necessarily, you know, during the, the period of time that, that they'll be with that payer. So coming up with a, a strategy for essentially getting this paid for, ideally for every person in the United States, is, is probably the first big hurdle to overcome. And, you know, I think it can be a combination of public and public-private initiatives that could potentially try to solve that and, and potentially a role for, for philanthropy to come in as well. You know, I think 
one thing that we're waiting to see is a an effective large scale application of this. And we've seen hints of it. You know, the early work that Regeneron did with Geisinger and the, the MyCode project was a nice window into what this could look like. So I just would love to see this done at a larger scale and ultimately coming up with that durable way to, to cover it. The other side of that then is you know, how will we be able to link up the electronic health record data that follows patients across their lifetime and lots of different yeah. systems and settings? So being able to put both the kind of the legislative support in place as well as the technological support in place to allow a patient's electronic health record accrued across their lifetime to be brought together in in one place, both for the support of the patient's care, but also for research purposes, I think will be a uh, a critical piece of that. So I think these are really challenging yeah. problems, but I think that, you know, I think it's manifest destiny, you know, that this is going to take place. So, yes. so you know, one, one way or another, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to be solved, but I'm pretty confident that this is going to be solved. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'm interested. What well, A note for me is uh, to see if I can find somebody to speak to on this podcast about solving this problem of getting it paid for in the U.S. Mm -hmm. in particular, because I think in yeah. the other thing I was going to say is in Europe, there's a different challenge, which is no individual country can really get us to that hundreds of millions. But the advantage over yeah. here is mostly, you know, socialized national healthcare systems that could, if there was the political will, do something like this. Like we've seen in the U.K., there has been a pretty concerted effort, um, but we'd have to get to the whole country to even get to 70 million. So, but you've got, you know, organized efforts in Finland and, and other places. So I think it's interesting to mm -hmm. think about there's two different models that I can see. Uh, but in the US, it definitely requires some creative uh, thinking about how to get it all paid for with the insurance system we've got going over there. Yeah. And you're in aggregate, of course, it's going to be valuable. So then the question becomes, you know, how are you able to put these data into the hands of the researchers? much in the way that was done with UK Biobank that, you know, respects the privacy and the concerns of the participants and the countries, but at the same time, you know, provides that opportunity for scientific and science discovery that will make essentially having spent that money on the sequencing that much more valuable in patient care. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I guess we have the tailwind of sequencing costs do continue to drop a little slower than maybe they were 10 years ago, but uh, dropping nonetheless. They are. Great. Well, Matt, thank you. I really enjoyed this. We covered a ton of ground. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Great. And thanks, everyone, as always, for listening. If you have guest recommendations, follow-up questions, or any feedback, you can reach us anytime, podcast at soundogenetics.com. And as always, the thing that we'd really appreciate you doing is share the episode with a friend you think would enjoy it. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>